Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Thomas Jefferson's stock as a founding father has gone down a bit in recent years. Other founding fathers, they're doing great. Everyone loves Hamilton right now. Benjamin Franklin, he is still considered America's kind of weird, gross genius uncle. George Washington is considered kind of virtuous and boring. John Adams had that pretty good Paul Giamatti miniseries. Yeah, they're doing fine. But Thomas Jefferson, uh, he was once considered this really amazing early American super genius, and now people sort of see him as a bad guy. And that's for a couple of totally justifiable reasons. Uh, One of them is that Jefferson, as a founding father, he advocated for a weak, limited executive, a president who really couldn't do that much. But when he was president, he probably did more than anyone else to expand executive power. For example, he just up and grabbed the Louisiana Purchase without really telling Congress about it. He had an undeclared war that he fought against the Barbary pirates in the Mediterranean. So when he was talking about the executive... His rhetoric said one thing, but when he was acting as the executive, his actions said something else. Then, of course, there is slavery. Jefferson was by no means the only founding father to own other human beings and keep them in bondage, but George Washington, well, he owned slaves too, and you cannot excuse that, but he at least had them freed at the time of his death, and Jefferson didn't do that, and then there is the whole Sally Hemings thing he almost certainly took sexual advantage of one of the human beings whom he owned. And there's no getting around that as something that's totally morally unacceptable. On top of all that, there's something else kind of tarnishing Jefferson's reputation. He's kind of a jerk in Hamilton. In those rap battles, he's supposed to be the sort of asshole dude that Alexander is trying to push back against. So, that's going on too. But, Even though Thomas Jefferson, even though his star has faded, even though we now think of as kind of America's original jerk dad, I want to talk about something that all Americans, whether we be Federalist or Jeffersonians or Whigs or whatever, can get behind. And that is proving a French jerk wrong via America's totally awesome megafauna. George Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon, devoted his life to writing a 46-volume work on natural history that he titled, fairly aptly, Natural History. In Volume 5 of Buffon's Natural History, he finally got around to talking about the New World, and when he did, he had nothing good to say about the Western Hemisphere. Indeed, he called his theorizing about the Americas a theory of American degeneracy. And this is not just the United States he's talking about. He's talking about the entirety of the North American and South American continents as being degenerate. Buffon's main thesis was that America was a dumb garbage half of the world because our climate was bad and we had stupid, small, weak animals. Uh, Buffon also spilled a fair amount of ink disparaging Native Americans, saying that the only people who really did anything in the New World were the Aztec and the Inca, and he referred to them as just half-civilized. So, he says that our animals are terrible, and there's a big old dose of old-timey bonus racism there as well. Here's a bit of Buffon's book, and it has all the subtlety, soundness, 
and accuracy of a YouTube comment section. It might make you mad. Quote, In every nation, though only half civilized, we meet with domestic animals. In France, the horse, the ass, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the hog, the dog, and the cat. In Italy, the buffalo. In Lapland, the reindeer. In Peru, the llama, the pecos, and the alco. In the eastern countries, the dromedary, the camel, and other species of the ox, the sheep, and the goat. In the southern regions, the elephant. All these have been reduced to servitude or rather admitted into society, while the savage, who hardly wishes for the society of his female, either fears or disdains that of other animals. It is true, none of the species we have rendered domestic existed in America, but if the savages with whom it was peopled had united and diffused mutual knowledge and resources of society, they would have subjugated almost all the animals of that country, most of them being gentle, tractable, and timid dispositions, with very few ferocious and none formidable. Hence, these animals have avoided the slavery of a domestic state neither by the fierceness of their nature nor the indocility of their tempers. Their liberty has resulted solely from the weakness of man whose powers are extremely circumscribed without the aid of society upon which even the multiplication of his species depends." Unquote. So there he is saying that America has stupid, weak animals, but that people from America, Native Americans, and he does have an exception for the Incas there when he mentions the Peruvians, they are too, well, not civilized enough to domesticate anything. Did that make you mad? It made Thomas Jefferson absolutely furious. And there's more! Not only does Buffon say that America has stupid, weak unfierce animals, he also says that we don't have very many of them. More of the French jerk, quote, The number of species, when compared with those of the old continent, was not above one-fourth or one-third. If we reckon that 200 species of quadrupeds exist in the whole of the known quarters of the globe, we shall find above 130 of them in the old continent, and less than 70 in the new. And, if we subtract the species common to both continents, or those which, by their constitution, were able to endure the rigors of the north and pass by land from one continent to the other, the new world cannot claim above 40 native species. In America, therefore, animated nature is weaker, less effective, and more circumscribed in the variety of her productions, for we perceive from the enumeration of the American animals that the number of species is not only fewer, but that, in general, all the animals are much smaller than those of the old continent. No American animal can be compared with the elephant, the rhinoceros, the hippopotamus, the dromedary, the camelopard, the buffalo, the lion, the tiger, etc. Unquote. Oh, man. That is, that is definitive. Also, fun little note about Buffon here. He considered his main rival back in Europe to be Carl Linnaeus, the Swedish naturalist, who invented a version of the classification system that we use for biological naming today. And Buffon thought that Carl Linnaeus, whose work formed and shaped and influenced natural science up until the present, was completely intellectually bankrupt. So this guy 
was pretty good at annoying historical figures who were probably smarter and more important than him. And if any of you listeners are zoologists or the like, you're probably grinning with amusement about how wrong this uh, dead French guy is. After all, it's not like France is home to a bunch of fierce and furious megafauna. America, though? We got wolves and bobcats and mountain lions and bison and bears. We have grizzly bears. North America is home to one of the most amazing organic death machines that nature has ever produced. And, lest you doubt the grizzly's aptitude for violence and majestic predation, just ask Timothy Treadwell. Those things are really good at making things die. But, Jefferson... This guy got under his skin, and he tried to get Buffon to respect America by basically sending him samples of American fauna. He sent him a mountain lion skin, and Buffon did not change his mind. Jefferson also sent him a moose, a live moose, but to no avail. It probably didn't help that when the moose arrived, it was worse for the wear from an ocean voyage, it had shedded a bunch, it was in poor health, and... It had non-moose antlers tied to its head, so even after receiving this, Buffon was unconvinced at the awesomeness of American fauna. It wasn't enough. The third president, he'd have to do more. He'd have to do something grand on a prehistoric scale. He would have to go bigger. He'd have to get a mastodon. That's right. He'd need a hirsute huffalump to prove that French jerk dude wrong. And Jefferson loved mastodons, and over the course of his life, collected a massive amount of mastodon teeth and bones. Granted, he did not call them mastodons. In his writing, he always refers to them as mammoths. The American mastodon and the European mammoth are a bit different. I'm going to use the term mastodon throughout this podcast, but when Jefferson was thinking and talking about these things, it was always mammoth this and mammoth that. But, he thought that these titanic creatures were just a thing to prove Buffon and other people who agreed with him wrong. They would prove that America was not degenerate and that the Purple Mountain Majesties produced animals that were just as majestic as the American landscape itself. So I know what you're thinking, hypothetical listener. You're thinking, didn't Thomas Jefferson realize that mastodons were extinct and had been for thousands of years? No. No, he did not. Thomas Jefferson thought that mastodons still existed somewhere in the wilds of North America. So this is all happening in the late 1700s and early 1800s, and Darwin's origin of the species wouldn't come out until 1859. That big Thomas Cunian paradigm shift in the world of science was a ways away at this point, and the theory of evolution as we know it wasn't really around yet. Also, the idea of maybe extinction as we know it wasn't really around yet. So nowadays we're all pretty on board with the idea that the Earth is billions of years old and that various time periods have seen the rise and fall of different sorts of life. You get your Permian, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, Paleogene, Neogene, Pleistocene, Holocene, and if you're hip to the current terminology, Anthropocene. And we're pretty used to the idea that different time periods have different types of life, like Stegosauruses, or giant ground sloths, or bats. However, back in Thomas Jefferson times, a lot of people still thought species were more or less permanent, and there are a few reasons why. Um, a big one was religious, the idea that once God created something, 
he'd created it, and it was just out there and eternal. God made dogs, we have eternal dogs. God made kangaroos, kangaroos forever, etc. That was a more popular view, and Jefferson's beliefs were a bit more nuanced, but we'll get to that in a moment. Another more secular notion for why there should still be elephants wearing Chewbacca costumes out there in the American West was that the dominant way of thinking among the intellectual class included a pretty heavy dose of Platonism, or rather a version of Platonism. And I want to apologize to any philosophy people listening right now, but I'm going to kind of way oversimplify the theory of forms for the purposes of this episode. But here it is. Imagine a thing. Let's say it's, I don't know, a giraffe. And that giraffe, it is a particular giraffe. And it is only one giraffe. But there is also the idea of giraffe in general, the idea of giraffe in itself. A particular giraffe is the shadow of that form of giraffe, that kind of non-physical idea. And that form, that finds shape and reality in particulars. So, you always have this idea that the physical world around you is kind of a shadow or extension of this world of forms. And these two ideas, Christianity and Platonism, informed a lot of discussion for literal centuries. And when they are combined, they give us a somewhat static version of reality. Instead of thinking about reality starting and developing and being different over the course of its development and then ending, no, instead you think of something that is maybe backward eternal and forward eternal and always kind of reflecting the world of forms in some way, always kind of giving us, you know, God's creation in some way. And Jefferson, he was a deist, so he didn't believe in a God that was the kind you could, you know, talk to and have a personal relationship with and say hi to, you know, like you couldn't say the Old Testament or New Testament. But he still very much believed in a creator who'd made everything all nice and functional and even kind of mechanical, and whose work was essentially unchangeable in the long term, even though particulars might shift. This is a letter from Jefferson to John Adams in 1823, where Jefferson lays out his view of how the world can change, but it all has some kind of divine regulation. Jefferson writes, quote, The movements of the heavenly bodies so exactly held in their course by the balance of centrifugal and centripetal forces, the structure of our earth itself, with its distribution of lands, waters, and atmosphere, animal and vegetable bodies, examined all in their minutest particles, Insects, mere atoms of life, yet as perfectly organized as man or mammoth. The mineral substances, their generation and uses. It is impossible, I say, for the human mind not to believe that there is, in all this, design, cause and effect, up to an ultimate cause, a fabricator of all things, from matter and motion, their preserver and regulator, while permitted to exist in their present forms, and their regenerator into new and other forms. We see two evident proofs of the necessity of a superintending power to maintain the universe in its course and order. Stars, well known, have disappeared. New ones have come into view. Comets in their incalculable courses may run foul of suns and planets and require renovation under other laws. Certain races of animals are become extinct and... Were there no restoring power, all existence might extinguish successively, one by one, until all should be reduced 
to a shapeless chaos. Unquote. Oh no, a shapeless, disordered universe where everything eventually dies? Oh man. Plot twist, guys. We've been living in that universe the whole time. So what Jefferson is saying here is that, sure, new things can change and particular species can become extinct, but there is regulation. There is a certain way of things. There are roles that are being played by planets and landmasses and comets and mammoths and people and animals, and new particulars will jump in to fill that role. The platonic form will be reflected in our reality. So, Jefferson's thinking goes, it's probable that the mastodon is still out there. His view of reality is very static. But, even if it's gone extinct, something else, probably, will have filled that mastodon-shaped hole. So hey, new mastodons, or at least new mastodon-like animals. There's another reason, though, why I think Jefferson believed mastodons were out there. He wanted to. He admired them, he loved them, and he wanted them to be real. And I think that actually is a way more powerful reason than anything involving religion or philosophy. Buffon died in 1788, and until his death, he remained totally unconvinced at North America being anything other than degenerate. Even after that, though, Jefferson was on the lookout for mastodons. This included when he sent Lewis and Clark on their expedition. He told them to keep their eyes open for any giant elephants that they might see. Back in Washington, the president was known to gaze at mammoth bones while he was in the White House, presumably wondering when the country that he was president of would finally, finally show him a mastodon in the flesh. Obviously, he never got to see such a thing. Jefferson's dives into paleontology, though, they did get him one big discovery. Not a mastodon, but an animal that he believed to be a giant American lion. It ended up being a huge prehistoric ground sloth, but to this day the creature bears Jefferson's name, Megalonyx jeffersoni. It's no living mastodon, it's not even a giant lion, but it's something, and in that way he is remembered as a scientist, not a modern scientist, not a scientist that we would be able to have any kind of conversation with because he had a very different way of thinking and paradigm than us, but something that led up to a modern scientist. Thomas Jefferson died on July 4, 1826, and when he passed away, Charles Darwin was still all of 17. Back in England, Darwin, he was a teenager who was ignoring medical lectures and messing around with taxidermy. The model of the world we have now, of the Big Bang, the eventual dawn of life, of evolution, it was still not out there, not completely. And when he died, Jefferson... He still had that old model in his head, which meant that he could still believe that out there in the American West were giant creatures who towered over all other known quadrupeds, animals that could embody all of the majesty of America. Eventually, we would know otherwise. Eventually, we would know that prehistoric megafauna had been dead and gone for centuries. But in his last moments... I want to believe that Thomas Jefferson dreamed of mastodons. This podcast is 100% independent and ad-free. I'm accountable to you, the listener, not advertisers. If you want to support the podcast, and I hope you want to support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. (laughs) 